Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. One way to screw up your fat reduction goals and your healthy eating and living goals is that over-exercising pattern where you become carbohydrate dependent because you're trying to refuel from these overly stressful workouts. Not to pick on CrossFit, I keep using that example, but if you're going and blasting yourself with this extremely challenging workout four days a week, you're going to be eating three, four, five, or six meals a day because you're going to be in this ravenous state where your glycogen depleted, your brain, your appetite hormones are all screwed up because of, of the overly stressful nature of your workouts. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I sat down and chatted with best-selling author, peak performance guru, and podcast host of the B-Rad podcast, Brad Kearns. We talked about all things working out and strategies for fat loss, along with the mental side of losing weight, new trends in working out, the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, and how intermittent fasting can play a role in weight loss. I've known Brad for a while now. We have a lot of things in common, and this episode was fun to do a syndicated podcast with my buddy Brad. So hope you enjoyed the episode, and thanks so much for listening. Brian Grin, we are together again. We've had some great shows in the past, and Get Lean, Eat Clean was, was once a dream and now it is well entrenched as a hot new fitness podcast. I know you hit your 100 show mark, so congratulations. And we're going to get into some important fitness and healthy living topics. Thanks, Brad. So this is fun. This is like a what, like a dual podcast here. You got the B-Rad. Yeah, um, we're going we're gonna to syndicate this show. And we're okay. going to be chit-chatting about all kinds of stuff. Uh, but what is, what's the experience been like uh, to get behind the microphone and, and launch this thing bold and bold and brave? You went out there and staked your claim. Well, I, I have to credit you a little bit. You helped me get some guests to start out and all it takes is one or two, you know, guests and then, you know, maybe some referrals after that. And um, it's been great. I love it. And I'm looking forward to the next year and, and not only getting great guests on my podcast, but also getting on some other podcasts. Um, you know, out there as well, which will, which will be fun. So, so we're probably going to have the conversation divert to speed golf at some point <laughs> because you have this great golf background, but I think the, the centerpiece of your, um, your operation there is a long time in, in personal training and helping people, uh, get lean. So maybe we should kick the conversation off there because I'm kind of obsessed with this topic of how to drop excess body fat successfully and looking around and seeing all the different things that people are confused about. I tell the story on my show, the fatty popcorn boy saga, where I had to uh, join, you know, instead of just talking about it and writing about it, I had to actually experience the challenge of dropping excess body fat that had creeped on without me really paying attention. And there's a mm -hmm. lot of different nuances and um, I think some, some misunderstandings out there. We were just talking off off the mic about uh, Dr. Herman Ponser's book, Burn, where he contends that we burn the same number of calories each day, whether we exercise or not. So the stuff starts to get pretty confusing for the average person. I mean, I agree. I think it can be confusing for anyone. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there regarding losing weight, getting lean. Um, you know, but I will say that um, one of the things I've learned and I had Drew Manning on my podcast, the, the fit, the fat, the fit guy is he, uh, he talked a lot about the mental side of, you know, the fact that he put on all this weight on purpose and then, and then wanted to get, obviously get it off. Um, and he's done it twice, I think. And <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. It is. And I, and I give him credit cause I don't know if I would do that. Um, you know, he did it, you know, sure. I'm sure he probably just did it. He wanted a way to relate with his clients. I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, it's a smart sort of marketing idea as well. I'm sure that was part of it, but either way, um, to put that weight on, um, and go through, like, I just think for me, it'd be the mental side of it. Um, I would say now, if anything, the reason I'm, you know, it's not a, I'm somewhat of a health nut is the fact that it makes me feel so much better. And I just think that's so important that if you get into the rhythm of 
creating these healthy habits that you're hearing from all these podcasts. Um, and you realize that, um, just mentally, you'll feel so much better day in, day out that you don't want to go back and go have, you know, Lumonati's, mm. I don't know, you don't know Lumonati's pizza, but, uh, you don't want to have that deep dish because you know how that's going to make you feel. And I don't know. I just think, you know, and I know you've had plenty of guests on and you talk about sort of the mental side of it, but you know, what, what, I guess, what have you learned through that? Or what, are there any guests that you've had on that you've gained, um, you know, some knowledge of regarding the mental side of losing? Oh man, you know, that, that whole story of Drew's is really fascinating. And the one comment of his that stuck with me was, um, what he, he purposely gained 60 pounds. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was going to yeah. do it. He thought it was going to take six months and it took like 90 days or I forget what his right. thing was, but all of a sudden he's a fat guy. And he said, um, when he was walking around in town, whatever, he felt ashamed and he like embodied that person and that shame uh, that, you know, society often uh, heaps upon people who uh, aren't looking like uh, the, the magazines and, and the TV actors. And he, he felt like, you know, he was in the supermarket and he wanted to scream out to everybody, hey, I'm a super fit guy who's just mm. doing this experiment and that mm. to think about being in that mindset and how. Um, you know, these, these limiting beliefs and things that we carry around inside, Hey, we're not perfect looking, or we're, we're not, we haven't met all our goals, but now everyone can see that everywhere you go and you start to embody that personality, boy, that's pretty heavy because, um, we, we don't want to do that. We want to consider, uh, excess body fat to be like a backpack that we're carrying around due to the choices that we've made in the previous three years or 10 years. And it's no big deal. It doesn't have to be who we are. It's just a, a situation that, um, you know, we're perfectly capable uh, of managing and, and changing, um, just like changing clothes. And I think that would be the most empowering place to start from is to say, you know, I'm okay how I am now. Um, I'm alive, I'm well, I'm breathing. And now I'm going to, you know, set a goal and go and, and, and manifest it and, and know where I'm headed really clearly. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Bruce Lipton, biology of belief, I just interviewed him and he was uh, not necessarily talking about uh, getting fit or losing excess body fat. That's not his area of expertise. But when he talks about the, the combination of behavior patterns and wiring them into habit with a clear vision and almost that manifesting uh, world of setting your destination. You know, they talk about cutting the picture out of the magazine of this big, beautiful house. And I have a horse stables on the left. And then I have a tennis court and a swimming pool and I'm like going to manifest. Board. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. put my dream board up. Right. Um, so you put the dream board up and a lot of people might have dream boards up where they have the picture of the, the, the guy with the six pack and they want to look like that. But then in everyday life, they get in their own way because they don't truly believe that they deserve to look like that or mm. deserve to achieve that goal. Like I want to be a par shooter on the golf course, man. And I'm very frustrated when I'm out there uh, missing three foot putts and it, my score is going higher, but somewhere deep inside, I feel undeserving or unprepared or something's in my way to mm. where I'm not out on that first tee looking like Tiger Woods. And let me tell you, I've watched that guy up close at live tournaments. It's very different than television when he was in his prime in the, you know, 2005, six, seven, eight, nine. And you go up and, and look at his face from 10 feet away and how his brain's calculating through the course and how confident and fearless he is. It's, I mean, you know, it's awesome. I was going to say, did you, did you watch his son this weekend? I saw the clip there of the, the kid hitting a four iron, this little yeah. guy who's only a bit taller than the four iron and he right. just rifles one at the pin. It was, it was amazing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, talk about having some swag. I mean, um, but no, those are all good points. I think that also too, like having a coach, I don't know if, um, your guest talked about just having someone there that's on your team, that's holding you accountable day in, day out or week in, week out. I think that could be the missing piece to a lot of people's, you know, like whatever health puzzle that they're trying to solve. Uh, because I mean, the information is out there, right? It can be confusing at times. Right. But I think most people know the difference between eating, um, a donut and eating an apple. Like they know what's healthy and what's not for the most part. Right. But it's not, it's, you know, part of it could be a lack of belief in themselves, but part of it could be the fact that they don't have someone holding them accountable. Yeah, great point. And it's, you know, answering to something bigger than yourself. And then even if the coach is, 
even if the coach isn't that good, right. if you sign up and hire a coach, that shows something that you're taking a stand and you're serious about it and you're paying money out. I think there's um, yeah. that element too, where it's got to be, it's got to be important enough to, you know, actually worthy of a, of a budget, uh, a budget outlay and all those things are setting you up for success. Uh, now, if you have a great coach, you said coach, if I say great coach, oh my gosh, then that's a total game changer. But even someone who will just meet you at the park and get you going, if so incredible, even if, you know, they leave you to their own devices and they're, they're not full of information and dispensing all these magical things, it's just getting in that groove and that rhythm. And I need to be better about that because um, with golf, I'm like, you know, I don't need to nitpick my swing with the teacher three times a week. Uh, but with my, my Christopher Smith guy, he's the greatest speed golfer of all time. And, um, one of the top 50 golf digest teachers and long time, long time career as a PGA professional. And just talking to him in a conversation on the phone gets me in a more focused and empowered mindset because I'm, you know, listening to myself and I'll, I'll utter a, a negative comment. And he'll catch me on that and say, you need to have more compassion for your mistakes on the golf course. And I'll be like, wow, you know, yeah. Why am I complaining so much when I can say uh, I'm enjoying the process of getting better? Yeah, I missed mm -hmm. a few three footers, but I don't have to beat myself up. I can look at it differently with his help to just open myself to bigger possibilities. Yeah, I mean, you know, having a third party is always helpful, whether it's golf or health and, um, I don't know. I just, you know, I, obviously I'm bi a little bit biased because, you know, I, that's what I do. I coach, coach a lot of male, ma mainly middle-aged males. And, um, but you know, everyone needs someone on their side. That's going to be, that's going to help them through it. Cause if, if you try doing it on your own, for the most part, you'll fall back into your old habits, which is just human mm. nature. So with your clients, um, what are some ways where you feel like you've been really effective? And then what have you seen in terms of stuff that didn't really click? Like you tried your hardest, you put it out there. And what are those behavior patterns that you see come up where uh, the person doesn't succeed? Yeah, I think what, one of the things I've learned is you just sort of got to meet people where they're at. And some people, you say something, you talk on the, you know, you, you talk once a week, let's say, and you, and you, you set some action items up. And then the next week they do it. And then there's others where that same action item is repeated over and over because they've, they've never, they haven't taken action. Um, so I think that, you know, yes, um, I can talk till I'm blue in the face, but until they really understand, and this goes back to sort of Drew Manning until they can really understand why, why are we meeting, you know, why do they want to take control of their health? Is it because they want to play with their kids? Or I think you have to really dig into that level. Um, almost like the why game and figure out what's truly moving them to take action until you can get to that. I mean, I can talk till I'm blue in the face and, and nothing's going to happen. And do you ever um, kind of step into a confrontational encounter where you're seeing the pattern repeat over and over? Maybe they're not. Yeah. Oh yeah. I kind of blew that off. Uh, but this last week was really busy or they got an excuse every week. Um, does that ever happen or, um, how does that go? So, well, I think what, ha what's, what's happened a little bit is a lot of my clients are, there's contradictions with what they've grown up thinking was healthy and what now is healthy. Like some of them think eggs aren't healthy and, and they're, and, and not only that, their doctor is telling them not to have uh -huh. so many, not to have eggs and to be on a statin or, you know, and, and so I'm. So now I'm coming in and I'm contradicting what their health professionals maybe advised them over the years, maybe a low fat diet and things like that. Um, and so, you know, you got to sort of tread lightly and, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to step on people's toes and I can only say what, you know, what I think is right for that client and let them make the decision. Oof. Yeah. That's a tough one, especially when you're, you know, uh, battling against, one of the pillars of society, which is uh, conventional medical care and um, medical information. Right. Um, and I think we're Mark Manson, the subtle art of not giving a fuck best-selling author. He says he, he cites research that uh, getting people to change their mind 
is so incredibly rare and, and massively difficult. We have no idea. And generally when we're arguing or, or making a convincing argument, um, we're, we're fighting a losing battle because yeah. uh, people just very, very rarely change their mind from their fixed and rigid beliefs. And uh, that includes the medical community and the, um, the the process of science. I think it was Doug McGuff. We're going to talk about him shortly, but um, he said, look, uh, 20 years from now, all this ancestral stuff, what, whatever the broad picture is painting about how, you know, it, eggs are okay to eat and uh, all the things that are being shaken up right now. He goes, it's going to take 20 years for mainstream to embrace this because that's how slowly science moves and uh, industry and, you know, uh, changing. He goes, I just want to be ahead of the curve. I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait that long. And that was a nice, kind way of saying, you know, the medical system is backwards and screwed up and terrible and they're, they're all wrong. Uh, he wasn't saying that at all. He was just saying that things move really slowly. And if you want to be ahead of the game, let's take a look at some of this emerging science and, and you know, try to stay on top of things. Same with fitness. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think, um, you know, talk about Doug McGuff um, and his, I'm actually reading his book right now and I'm, I know you've had him on. Um, you've also had other people who probably have some differing opinions on, let's just say frequency of workout and, um, and let's just say intensity and, you know, time under tension and things like that. Hmm. Um, you know, it can confuse a podcast host, <laughs> Brad, uh, I'm that's not what's sure so you... fun. That's what we got to get into <laughs> today, man. Right. I mean, so I, you know, and, and it's for myself, you know, uh, working with the X3 over the last couple of years and having Dr. John Jaquish on, um, which is, a, there's a similar philosophy there, right? Between McGuff and what Jaquish talks about with his 10 minutes a day in the X3. And for me as a traditional body, not a bodybuilder, but lifter for 20 years, 20 plus years, it definitely took me time to understand that as long as, yeah, like, that maybe I don't need to work out as much and I can be just as effective. I don't need to be sore and I can build muscle. And I'm, I'm actually learning that I've learned that over the last couple of years. Yeah. This is a really fascinating, uh, breakthrough in fitness that I see happening recently. And we can kind of group together to make a big picture here. When we, we talk about uh, body by science with Doug McGuffin, John Little and John Jaquish X three bar, who's all over Instagram touting his very brief, but extremely challenging workout. And Dr. Ted Naiman, uh, the PE ratio diet, and he's also pretty prominent on Instagram, uh, advocating these um, single set to complete muscular failure uh, in a single workout. So he's saying like, get up there and get on the pull-up bar and do as many as you can until you drop. Uh, and you could do a, a short rest and then go sprint once up a hill in your neighborhood and then come back and do one set of push-ups, and these types of workouts where you're fatiguing the muscle completely, uh, just like Dr. Jaquish talks about where he's doing the variable resistance and the, the uh, decreased range of motion until you can absolutely not even stretch the bar at all because your muscles are completely torched. Um, it's really fascinating to me how the, the idea is that you're gonna make quick strength breakthroughs with very minimal duration workouts. And um, we'll, we'll pause there, but then the follow-up is what the heck are we doing in the gym for hours and hours? But what do you think about the, the overall premise of, you know, prompting strength gains with a workout that's in Doug McGuff's case, he says 12 minutes a week is the subtitle on his book, 12 minutes a week, people. Well, yeah, I, my thought around that is I, I, I think if you focus on the eccentric motion more when you're doing these, these weightlifting, um, routines throughout the week, um, I think that can go a long way and eccentric essentially is the lowering of the weight. So like, you know, I've been doing with the X3 is trying to count, you know, five, I'd say five to eight seconds as I'm concentrically lift, lifting the weight and then, and then letting it come down another five to So five to eight seconds in the, in the idea. And McGuff talks about this in his book is no momentum no swinging. Um, you're under tension the entire time. And it's almost the thought of, and I might start doing this is timing how long it takes you. I think in the book, it talks about like 60 to 90 seconds of time under tension for that, for that muscle. 
um, as opposed to worrying about sets and reps, which I, which is most traditional lifters mm-hmm. do. And what I did forever, just trying to hammer through it as fast as possible, not even focusing on the eccentric motion of the exercise. But, um, I think that can go a long way. You know, I'm, I'm still, uh, I know Dr. Doug McGuff talks about one, like seven days of rest. I, I don't know. I'm not quite there. <laughs> It, I'm not quite there. I actually sent a message to someone that I had on my podcast. His name's Eugene Lokis. Um, but and he, he was just sending me back his thoughts on that, which don't agree with that. Um, as far as hypertrophy training that you would need more, um, more than one a week workout. So, you know, I know there's science, maybe both ways, and maybe it just depends on what you're using as your, your lifting platform and, you know, and, and how great of a, stimuli that that is to 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 make that decision well for me it's helpful to understand first off the the context and in john jayquish's case doug mcguff's case they're talking about getting the muscle stronger period so increasing muscle strength and that's quite different and disparate and there's a great chapter in mcguff's book where uh, he focuses on uh, sports specific training and comparing and contrasting a workout where you're trying to become a better athlete versus a session where you're trying to increase muscle strength. And the argument is let's have this muscle strength uh, effort going on in the background from whatever other athletic endeavors you're doing. So when you're going for strength, you do this really brutal 12 minute workout or in the X3, you're taking uh, 10 minutes a day to work on the different muscles. And then I like to uh, uh, sprint, high jump, play speed golf. I want to work on my skills, uh, tennis player, basketball, whatever. Uh, but you don't want to really mix the, um, the effort to get stronger while you're also uh, playing sports because it's too stressful to the body. And so when I'm out there sprinting, I'm practicing sprinting. My workout doesn't last that long because I get too tired and the ballistic, uh, you know, jumping drills for high jumping or sprinting are so strenuous and have so much breakdown that it's really difficult for me because I'm constantly getting injured or I'm getting sore muscles or things are holding me back from going out there and sprinting every day or even more than, you know, once a week on a, on a proper full duration workout. Now, if I could come to these workouts with more overall muscle strength and resiliency, then I'm looking at a nice tidy package where I can practice without that uh, risk of breakdown and, and you know prolonged recovery time because I'm overall stronger person. But you know not to mix and match, and then uh, in the skill or the sports specific training, they don't have to be incredibly strenuous. Uh, because that's where I think we, we run afoul. And if you're thinking about someone, let's say going in the gym and working out an hour, four days a week, and they're doing this and they're doing that, um, that's where you could kind of tempt the overtraining breakdown, burnout, illness, injury patterns that we see are so common. CrossFit is the perfect example. Yeah, I definitely agree. You definitely want to separate the skill of a sport versus just getting strong. Um, and but you know, you're going to get differing opinions on, on the best way to get strong, I guess. I mean, um, you're still going to have the traditionalists say you should, you know, you, you know, you should do three sets of, you know, eight to 12 reps. Um, but th- I don't think there's nothing that really dip- dis- disputes the fact that you should also really focus a lot on the negative portion of the, of the lift, which I never used to do. And you'll see guys do this now, um, more and more where, you know, you're, you're not only lifting it, let's say on a five count on the way up, but a five count on the way down, um, that can make, that can go a long way. And just to, you know, just to let you know, I tried, you know, like I've, I know I've posted some stuff about me doing the orange band and the orange and the white band. And yes, I can do it when I'm moving at a decent pace, but let me just say yesterday, I tried it like five down five up and like, I mean, yeah, not definitely wasn't pretty. It wasn't Instagram worthy. <laughs> so, so people, if you're yeah. familiar with the X3 bar, it's a home fitness sensation uh, and it has a, a bar that you strap on these different um, resistance bands of varying thickness. 
And it comes with a nice set of four or five bands going from dark black to light gray being easy. And then if you're a real superstar, you can order up separately this mm -hmm. ridiculous orange band that Dr. Jaquist shows uh, he's doing his chest press and he's a very strong guy and he's able to, to use this, uh, this, uh, accessory item. And then here's Brian on Instagram doing squats, one legged squats. Am I not mistaken there? Yeah. Yeah. I'll so that, that actually. is like, it's probably the single most difficult exercise I, I've ever tried where you don't know that type of muscle fatigue, unless you've tried the variable resistance, uh, to complete muscular failure. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of effort to, um, to, to stretch those bands. And I think it, it scales for everybody, which is cool too. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we could, you know, variable resistance was something I never really talked about or did other than over the past year and a half, two years, you know, with the quarantine. And then I wanted to try something different. So if you haven't done variable resistance, resistance, whatever it is, whether it's the X3 or whatever, uh, bands you're trying, or, um, I think it makes sense because everyone's on a strength curve. I mean, we're strong at different ranges of motion and, um, and that's what sort of, that's the tout, that's what touts the X3 is, as as um, effective is the fact that when you get stronger, it gets more difficult. Um, but yeah, all I have to say is when you slow things down, <laughs> good luck. You got, I, I think I even read in Dr. Doug McGuff's book that you should go at least 20, 30%. It, may, it might've not been his book, but I remember reading about, you should go at least 20 to 30% less weight if you're really going to focus on the negative and the eccentric and slowing it down. So I might have to go a little bit lighter. <laughs> oh my gosh. My first exposure to this was actually in Chicago, uh, your, oh. your, your hood. Uh, and they had the, the super slow gym. They, they sponsored an event. Yeah, and Mark Sisson and I before. came in. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they call this super slow training mm -hmm. and everything is, you know, in this uh, really prolonged count where you're doing a rep of something. And right. so I was just meeting these people for the first time and talking about how, you know, my routine in the park is I do a hundred decline Spider-Man pushups uh, most every morning where I'm going in sets of 40, 20, 20, 10, whatever. And I showed them, you know, you elevate your legs and you go down, not just doing an elevated pushup, but you're driving your knee to your elbow as you lower and then back mm. up. And I call it the, the most difficult pushup there is. And they say, have you ever tried super slow? And I said, no, what, what do I do? Okay. So I'm there <laughs> with these people watching and I lower down with their count. They're asking yeah. me to go down for a count of eight and up right. for a count of 10 or something. And I got to five pushups and I was completely uh, twitching Done. and wobbling and then dropped to the ground, collapsed uh, in shame with all these people going, oh, I did five. <laughs> well, what are you saying? You do a hundred every day. So I wasn't yeah. like incompetent at pushups, but it was so different. And then the next morning I woke up and my pecs were all sore because it was such an amazing stimulation. Yeah. It's something, something you try to try. If you've never done it, just slow it down and see what you can do. You, I would definitely recommend going less weight just feeling it out. So it's yeah. safer too. I think it, it's great yeah. to, you know, incorporate more people into this, uh, critical obligation of strength training. Uh, but you see a lot of times the female population, they're going in the gym and they're climbing the stairmaster, they're doing the spin class, they're doing the, um, you know, uh, the strenuous cardio class, but they're not putting their body under huge resistance load just because they're averse to it or intimidated, or there is a safety factor when you're talking about free weights that, you know, most people probably don't need to venture in there for a long time. Uh, mm. But when you're doing everything slow, it's super challenging and it's vastly safer than, you know, hoisting even, even the machines, you can uh, strain your neck or something. If you don't know what you're doing when you're hoisting weight and, and, you know, having it drop under force. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. Um, I mean, I just did traditional lifts forever and it's, it's a game changer. So, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to keep working at it because let me tell you, I'm going to have to, yeah, I'm going to have to go down and wait a little bit, you know, doing these, you know, like you said, eight seconds, you count to eight seconds. It feels it's like torture and then coming back. Um, I know Jay Vincent, I've been watching some of his videos on, on, on YouTube where he'll put someone through that workout. So definitely worth checking it out. Uh, so back to this idea, you said you had a, a difference of opinion coming through with your associate and uh, talking about the once per week, you know, the Doug McGuff template is doing uh, these five, uh, the, the big five workouts, which are functional full body 
exercises, uh, leg press, overhead press, chest press, uh, seated row Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, uh, pull down. Okay. So these are uh, major movements that incorporate the big muscles and you do them to total failure one set each only, uh, we're doing them slowly though. So they're, they're pretty tough. And then you're out of the gym probably in 12 minutes. And then (laughs) according to research and their whole argument is that if you try to do it more frequently than that, you won't progress as quickly. You'll be having delayed recovery. And so they discovered that once a week is a sweet spot and boy, it's, it's tough to embrace. Uh, but the one thing I will um, float out there before I get your lengthy opinion is if you're not that strong to begin with, you can probably go out there and do the workout twice because it's not so impressive what you just did in that 12 minutes. And I'm putting myself in that category. Cause when I started doing the big five, I'm like, dang, my muscles have gone to complete failure, but I haven't, you know, I haven't rode that much weight because I'm just not that strong out of the gate. And I feel like in three or four days, I could probably go in there and put in an impressive effort, but I could imagine someone who is really strong and is working with 210 pounds or whatever it is, those muscles are going to need a lot of repair time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it depends. It probably depends on your background, how much you've been lifting. I mean, once a week to me just sounds like, um, you would need to stimulate, you need to get more stimuli more than once a week. But again, you know, um, he's obviously has a lot of research behind this. My only thing with his big five is I'm just surprised there's not some type of hip hinge in there. Um, you know, some type of deadlift motion, um, you know, obviously leg press plays an important role, but, um, you know, that's the only thing I would say, but yeah, I mean, we can probably talk hours about, you know, this or that. I think if you're not doing anything once a week is great. And you know what, if it gets you, if it, if it gets a move in and, 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 you know, something that you've never done before, I would go for it. If you've never done resistance training, then you know, definitely, I would say start with once a week. Um, I think it just depends how, how you're stimulating, how, how you're stimulating the muscle. And, you know, I think you need someone, I think, you know, like Dr. Doug McGuff, he's really, they're really getting it to fatigue. Um, and I think everyone's a little bit different. Some people might re- recover faster than others. So uh, yeah, it's also, um, Dr. John Jaquish with osteo strong, that, that chain of centers that are designed targeting the, the osteoporosis, the senior population and trying to, uh, rebuild not just muscle strength, but bone density. They're also on this once a week protocol. And look, if you're going in there and you're putting up bigger numbers week after week, after week, something's working. And we're not talking about, you know, my mom right. just joined Osteo Strong in Los Angeles and uh, she's gone through several sessions and is, is showing that she's stronger on the chest press by this many percent. Look, we're not going for the Olympics here where we want to sneak in another workout on the Friday after your Tuesday to see if you can get some marginal gains. And I think that's where a lot of us get tripped up is especially like I'm familiar with the endurance community and the triathletes who are super competitive and driven and want to get a little faster in the swim and also improve their hill climbing on their bike. And they go out there and they overdo it and they push into hormone imbalance, fatigue, muscle breakdown, things like that, because they're going for incremental gains rather than a patient and perhaps a conservative approach. But again, if you're putting up a bigger number, I don't think you're going to be in the risk of detraining when you go and do that impressive workout once a week. Sisson likes to tell this anecdote of his college girlfriend. So we're talking about decades ago, right? He's, he's an old man now. Come on, people. He's, this is maybe 50 years ago now. Uh, and he said his girlfriend would go to the gym once a month and do a very, very difficult workout where she wanted to put up this many plates on the machines. And then she'd do uh, whatever, the rope climb or something that you measure. And if she could complete the workout at the same standard she she met hmm. the previous month, she was good to go and she was maintaining her fitness. And whatever she did in between that, maybe she lived a healthy, active lifestyle. She's hiking. She's uh, going for a, a roller skating date with Mark Sisson. Who knows? But that was pretty interesting to think 50 years ago. Here's someone who's thinking so sensibly And so, you know, it's irrefutable logic that if you can, you know, stay in shape by meeting the same workout standard over time, 
And geez, let's open up my training logs over my time as a serious athlete. I'd have horrible uh, month here and three week lull here because I got burnt out, broken down. I got injured. I lost all my fitness. I had to climb back up. None of that was happening with the smooth gracefulness of someone who's going once a month and putting up numbers. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if you're, I guess it all comes down to results, right? And I think that was talked about in Doug McGuff's book is the fact that they found that they were getting better results by doing that, you know, a once a week protocol of just really intense time under tension exercise. And they said, well, that's, you know, that, that shows that you, you might only need, you know, whatever, five to seven days of rest. Uh, um, well, uh, which is quite a, you think quite a bit for a traditional lifter. Um, but yeah, I mean, it all comes down to results, right? I mean, Hey, um, I just think I, I enjoy working out. I enjoy doing, you know, I, I, I just enjoy doing that. So it, it just, for me, I'm like, well, what else am I getting? You know, it's like golf, like, you know, what, else, you know, we don't have golf now in the winter here. So now, you know, I spend a little more time in the gym and, you know, I could do stuff, other things that are more skill-based, you know, whether it's balance or, or working on different ranges of motion, um, you know, with squats and, you know, like, you know, like a lateral plane or, you know, you could do a lot of different things that don't necessarily simply focus on muscle building, which I think is, you know, obviously can be beneficial in general, just for range of motion and mobility. Right. Right. And I'm thinking, um, the, the, the interesting insight that's really, uh, changed my approach in recent times is to reflect on, uh, the, the training patterns of the, the great elite athletes of the planet. And these people are so supremely conditioned that when they go out there to their two hour training session every single day, and they're, if you watch from the stands, they're doing some impressive hard work there, mm -hmm. but they're so highly conditioned and they're so genetically gifted too. Let's not forget that, that these workouts are not as taxing as the average CrossFit person who's trying to go show up four days a week because of the sense of community and the wonderful socializing, but they're putting themselves through hell four days a week because climbing a rope three times and running around the block 400 meters and then coming back and doing some Olympic liftings is truly strenuous. And so this is the pattern that we want to be on high alert for is that fatiguing, exhausting training pattern. But then we kind of misinterpret the example that the elites are setting. Uh, the runners are famous for this, where they're looking at, um, you know, the, the Olympic marathon runners like Galen Rupp or Iliad Kipchoge or Mo Farah, and they can show their training on the internet and watch the videos of them doing six times a thousand meters with a 30 second recovery. And they're hitting about two minutes, 47 for each one. It's like, wow, those guys are working so hard, but they're so supremely conditioned. It yeah. is many of their workouts are literally comparable to the average endurance athlete taking a brisk walk around the block with the dog. And so if we can reframe our training goals to where, Hey, Brian likes going out, going to the gym, he's popular there. Everyone says, hi, he talks, <laughs> he gets over and does his workout. But if you were to, let's say, cut your weight down to, you know, 60% of one rep max or whatever you're doing, Hey, you're breathing. You're getting a little sweat. Uh, you're working on the balance things like you talked about. You're doing these peripheral activities, but you walk out of that gym and you're nowhere near fatigued, exhausted, or depleted. You've just worked hard to kind of, uh, you know, maintain a fitness base and a, and a launching platform from the times where you really are going to go hit it hard. And I don't think that should be more than once a week for almost everyone, especially um, those listening. The Olympic athletes might be out there doing two epic workouts a week, but that's because they're Olympic athletes. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And, um, you know, I'm looking in your background here, you said your two meals a day book, and I'm just curious, what, what did you, what did you learn from doing that book? And, um, and how do you think, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, obviously it's, there's more than you talk about more than just two meals a day, but what are the, some, some of the big pillars that you learned from that? Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's a good transition. Cause I think we should talk about how the diet <laughs> component comes in and the fasting and getting lean and all that. Um, and, uh, just to say goodbye to the, the exercise we example for a moment, <laughs> one way to screw up your fat reduction goals and your healthy eating and living goals 
is that over-exercising pattern where you become carbohydrate dependent because you're trying to refuel from these overly stressful workouts. Not to pick on CrossFit, I keep using that example, but if you're going and blasting yourself with this extremely challenging workout four days a week, you're going to be eating three, four, five, or six meals a day because you're going to be in this ravenous state where your glycogen depleted, your brain, your appetite hormones are all screwed up because of, of the overly stressful nature of your workouts. So um, I think we, we, we do a, a pretty hard effort in the book to talk about the lifestyle factors that influence your dietary goals, your dietary transformation goals. So we got to get that stuff dialed before we go tweaking around with our diet. I mean, keto has been so popular for years and we have uh, several books on that, on that subject. Uh, but when you're talking about slashing your carbohydrate intake, you need to regulate your life stress levels because we know uh, that, you know, high cortisol production, high fight or flight response, prolonged fight or flight response is directly correlated with increased appetite for quick energy carbohydrate. So you're uh, running around with a hectic daily pace. That behavior is largely going to be fueled by uh, junk food and quick energy carbs that, that give you that boost that you need because you're constantly going on fight or flight, where if you sit down to uh, pleasant, enjoyable meals, you're eating nutritious foods, uh, you're kind of uh, promoting that fat burning state, which is that stress rest balance. And so those go hand in hand before we even talk about, you know, cutting out the, the Ben and Jerry's habit in the evening. We got to unwind that story of why that spoon needed to go into that pint of ice cream 23 times to kill the pint. It's likely driven by overly stressful lifestyle habits. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a lot of good points. Um, and I'm looking also behind your right shoulder. Your, well, yes, it's your right shoulder and your carnivore um, nutrient dense chart, right? The carnivore scores. And I, I love that. It's actually something that I refer to quite a bit. And um, one of the things I think I like the most that you sort of um, led me on to was the smash family. Um, because I, I, sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, and herring, I like the fact that I think that sometimes people think that if they're going to eat really healthy, it's going to be really expensive mm. and taking that excuse out, because I will say I've been buying hearing. It's like my new thing, hearing and actually mackerel and combining them, which you wouldn't think, oh, but mackerel is very like a neutral flavor. So you could probably put it with anything, but, um, that's been like my, you know, I typically have two meals a day. Sometimes one, sometimes, you know, sometimes maybe even a little bit more just depends on the day, but for, for on average, probably two meals a day. And that first meal used to be a big salad and, um, like a veggie burger. I mean, I was like, I, I was not, a, this was like two years ago. I was not a meat eater. I was like a pescatarian for a while. And I used to find the, I choose to try to find very high quality veggie burgers without a lot of vegetable oils. Cause I know there's a lot that do have a lot of junk in them, but I found some good ones. And either way, it was still weighing me down. But now, um, and this is just me personally, um, I went into the smash family and I use that as my middle of the day, let's just say two o'clock first meal, um, and been combining herring and mackerel and sometimes sardines. I tried anchovies and I've had them before. I, I don't know. I just can't, can't really do that, but I just love that family right there. The, the wild caught cold water fish because they're not overly expensive and, you know, they can be any, you know, they, it's, they're easy to get and they're not overly expensive, I guess is my point. What a and great point to highlight the, the yeah. budget aspect, because you hear so much blowback from people saying, well, uh, you know, all that organic stuff is more expensive. Grass fed is hideously expensive. I'm even scared to buy the, um, you know, you, you see the, uh, the beautiful steaks from uh, Bill Campo in, in the fancy market in Los Angeles, and it's $34. And I'm like, you know what, I'm not that good enough as, of a cook to buy that thing and go home and screw it up. So I'm kind of scared. But if you look at the, uh, the chart that Kate Kretzinger and I developed, um, liver Grass-fed liver is arguably the most nutrient-dense food on the planet. 
And it's dirt cheap because people are, the consumer demand is not there. And so if you look at the high rankings, the smash family, the pasture raised eggs where you're paying six bucks or something for a dozen instead of three bucks, that is the best return on investment value for the increase in nutrient density from getting a true pastured egg. And now they're in widespread distribution all over the country, especially vital farms. You see them, I think they have a consortium of local farms. And so you can get that product almost anywhere and anything you can't get, you can go and order online. I have oh, butcher yeah. box delivering food to my door. It's all grass fed and uh, pasture raised. Uh, U.S. Wellness Meats has uh, these beautiful cuts of uh, all the different organs, heart, liver, kidney, uh, liverwurst, Braunschweiger, uh, very, very affordable. So all of a sudden you're eating at the very highest level of nutrient density and it does not have a huge budget impact. And so if we can put that excuse aside for a moment, uh, then we're looking good. And of course you can go get some delicacies. I mean, salmon eggs are also highly ranked up there uh, with liver uh, and you can get a very small amount of salmon eggs for $10. So I'm not uh, doing that as much as I'm doing the liver, uh, but okay. whatever it takes, uh, there's ways to make it work. And I think the great experience of coming away from uh, preparing that chart was to realize that, you know, this has now become my main dietary focus is to elevate the nutrient density of my diet more so than, you know, worrying about macronutrient ratios or even having Calories. a ton of variety. Like, you know, we have enough pleasures and indulgences in life and I go out and get enough, uh, you know, wonderful restaurant meals or special meals when we're on vacation. I have enough of that to last me and sustain me. So when I'm home, I have no problem just cooking up the same or very mm -hmm. similar things day after day after day, because I, I think of food as, you know, it's not just for pleasure and indulgence. It's also medicine. It's also fuel. It's also the, maybe the number one uh, health intervention you can make to promote longevity and avoid disease risk factors. So it's kind of, um, you know, it's easy to make those decisions to say, look, I'm going to sit down and have something that I happen to enjoy, but I don't have to go out of my way to constantly uh, please my palate and get this incredible variety and then temp, you know, bring the temptations in of the, uh, the indulgent foods, the decadent foods that, you know, lend themselves to being consumed more and more because they're uh, literally addictive to the brain and the appetite receptors. Yeah. I mean, you talk about, you know, spending this on a budget too. What about like ground meat? Um, ground meat is less expensive than going out and buying a ribeye. And I use a company, um, called there's, there's other ones, but force of nature. I, I order their oh, ground. Yeah. yeah. Their ground ancestral blend. Um, and it's also has, I believe they put, um, some organs in there as well. I believe heart and one other organ is already blended up in there. So it's great. You don't even know it's there. If you're worried about, oh, I don't want to have heart or I don't want to have liver because maybe you're worried about the taste. Uh, well, get a ground meat where it's already grounded in there. You won't even know it's there. And you're eating high nutrient dense foods for not that expensive. I think one package is like 11 bucks. And that's probably, I think, you know, last at least one or two, at least two meals, I would say on that, maybe one for some people. But um, I th yeah, like I said, I, I, that's the key. I mean, that, right. I mean, we can talk to, we're blue in the face about working out and how many sets and how many reps and intensity. I mean, if you're going for walks and you're eating quality nutrient dense foods, I mean, that, that, right, that right there can make, can go a long way. Yeah. And back to the, the title of the book, two meals a day, that was the other big insight that we tried to highlight was there's two, uh, deals. It, it, in play here. One of them is the choices that you make of the foods that you eat and trying to, you know, go for the more healthful products. Uh, but there's this other element of how frequently we mm. eat. And that's the part that uh, seems to have been uh, widely abused in modern times. Uh, there's also great research in recent years about time-restricted feeding, the importance of giving the body uh, you know, the, the digestive circadian rhythm goes hand in hand with our overall circadian rhythm. So we don't want to be eating much at all after dark. We don't want to be eating throughout our waking hours. Uh, Dr. Panda's research at Salk Institute, UC San Diego, I think he had like an average food eating window uh, for the, the, the large population that participated in his study, the average was like 16 point something hours. And it's like, right. wait a second, that's how long we're awake. Yeah. And so for, for many, many people, they put 
calories in their mouth as soon as they awaken and they're nibbling on something uh, all the way up until right before they go to bed. So now it's become popular to kind of compress that eating window into whatever number of hours. And I'll ask your opinion on, on some of that stuff going on. I know you're, um, you're big on those uh, uh, tightened eating windows, uh, but I think generally um, there's a lot of personal preference here that we need to respect and whatever works for people. Uh, but just the idea that we can sustain ourselves without these regular feedings and snacks, especially snacking can be really harmful to fat loss goals. Uh, that's a nice, uh, completely different um, journey to travel besides making the good choices when we do eat. Yeah. I, you bring up snacking. Actually, I had Megan Ramos on my podcast over the past year. And Megan Ramos is partnered with uh, Dr. Jason Fung, who was probably the first author and uh, doctor that I read about talking about fasting. And um, I read his first book, uh, Obesity Code, and that really spurred me into this sort of journey down intermittent fasting. And so I completely agree. I think that I always say the first place to start is, well, if you don't want two meals a day and you want to do three meals a day, that's fine. Just eliminate snacking. And she actually, I asked her at the end of the, the interview, I said, well, what, what do you think would be one beneficial tip for individuals, you know, if they want to, you know, maybe, maybe get their bodies back to what it once was 10, 15 years ago, which is a question I ask a lot of my guests. And she's like, you know, she, and she's seen so many different clients do with fasting. She's like, you know, if they could just eliminate snacking, um, right there, that tip alone can go, you know, go a long way. And like you talk about, it's, 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 it's a combination of these foods that are stimulating insulin all, you know, um, but also doing it frequently throughout the day. It's, you know, so if you can, you know, yeah, if you're going to have foods, obviously any food's going to stimulate insulin for the most part, um, some more than others, obviously. Right. But if you can just reduce that number to maybe two meals a day or three meals a day, and, and that's it, that's a great place to start. Even if you don't want to get into, um, some type of window of fasting. Yeah, there's some good commentary about this feast or famine concept. I think Dr. Art Devaney was the first one to really harp on that, where, you know, we're, we're designed to, um, we're designed to live well off of stored energy. And perhaps the healthiest way to go through life is this, this feast or famine pattern that we've uh, experienced throughout evolution. Mm -hmm. And I know in my own personal example, like once I turn that switch on, like I haven't eaten yet today, it's around midday here and on the West coast. Um, as soon as I do, I'm going to go probably have what would be considered a, a large meal because it's time to eat and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm not going to limit my portion sizes or any of that nonsense that we know is kind of uh, dated and, and flawed guidance. Uh, but um, I also wasn't obsessed with food in the early morning awaking hours because I'm good at burning fat and I'm, I'm not worried about it. I'm busy. I was uh, doing things, uh, but it's kind of, I, I think if you're leaking in snacks throughout the day, um, that could disturb your, your appetite and your, your caloric intake because you, you kind of, uh, a snack begets, uh, additional snacking and then transitioning right into a meal. And if that's your pattern and your habit it's going to be easy to kind of, uh, dysregulate. Yeah. And one thing I found just working with clients is I think if you keep it simple and it's like mm. a black and white thing, people will follow it. So that's where I think fasting can come and play a big role in the sense that you're either not, you're either not eating or you, you're, you're you know, you're either in a fed state or you're in a fasted state. Now, granted, yes, there's a little maybe ambiguity and there's a gray area. Oh, can I have black coffee or can I have tea? And yeah, I mean, I would say that anything with calories is breaking a fast, right? So, um, wow. You know, imagine that people, Brian really, is using the that? literal definition of the term rather than all this nonsense about our uh, brown rice fast. Like, what is that? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Fasting means not eating. Right. And I'm also on a campaign. I don't know if you know this, but, uh, I'm on a quest to eliminate the term intermittent fasting and just call uh -oh. it fasting because intermittent fasting is, is, um, right. it's a, it's a redundant phrase, right? <laughs> of course yeah. it's intermittent fasting. We're not fasting. I mean, right. we're fasting or we're eating. So uh, it's always intermittent fasting, even if it's an hour. So come on just call it fasting. Okay. That's my, that's my soapbox. 
Yeah, no, that's okay. That's yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause I, I, uh, I was in Florida a couple of weeks ago and I go on the driving range and this guy who I've known for a while and he's pretty healthy. He goes, are you still into that fasting thing? <laughs> and I go, you mean not eating? <laughs> you know, it's like, I think people, they hear that word and it's like, oh my God, like the, like doomsday is coming. Um, and, and I, you know, and I, I'm not going to blame them because honestly, when I first was learning about fasting, which I did through a client of mine, um, she actually introduced me to it. Cause she was, she was overweight and die and, and pre-diabetic and, um, she just got into it on her on her own and started doing fasting and the extent of, and got all her blood numbers back to normal. And I just thought it was unbelievable. And so anyways, that's, that was my story into fasting, but, um, yeah, I, I think that people, there's this connotation around fasting that they're scared of it or, or that, that what's going to happen if they have hunger pains, I think that's the biggest thing. And, and, and once you wrap your arms around that and you accept this, this hunger, that's going to come, but it will also go like hunger, hunger mm. cues come and they go. And they're usually based on certain times of the day where you're used to eating. Mm. So I think it's important to, I think I like mixing up when I'm eating and keeping my body sort of guessing and me- metabolically flexible in the sense that it doesn't really know when I'm going to eat. You know, there's sometimes where I might eat earlier and there's sometimes where I might not eat till later. So I think messing around with that and just getting out, I know some people like to keep to a schedule, but I think actually for your body, and just for your mind. And, and if you're getting into fasting to, to change up your eating pattern a little bit, just so you're not so stuck in one way. Yeah. I like that. It's, um, not being, uh, attached or addicted to anything, even in a positive manner where, um, you're, 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 you're a keto person and it's become part of your identity and you never eat more than 50 grams of carbs a day. And you're very rigid about that. And if there's nothing to eat there in your, in your environment, you're going to skip the meal or you're going to stress out, or you're going to have to reach for one of your, uh, specially approved keto snacks. And that makes you, uh, having a little bit more of a rigid lifestyle. So I think that term metabolic flexibility, like you describe, Hey, I'm sometimes going to have a, a massive giant breakfast if we're going out and it's a social event and I feel like it and I'm going to hit it. And then the next day I might not eat anything till 1 PM and all those things uh, possibly could be uh, described as the, the, the healthiest and most well-adjusted way to, um, to, 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 to eat. Uh, because when you get that regimentation restriction and narrow focus, um, this can easily lead to uh, symptoms of orthorexia. That's an unhealthy fixation on uh, the correct approach. And that is a prominent uh, and increasing problem, especially in the progressive health community where people are learning more and more. Now, I'm not going uh, to say, uh, follow this up with uh, a quip, like everything in moderation, because that really bugs me when people use that comment when it comes to diet, because our diet is so disastrous in our overall health state here. We're both in America, the, um, you know, the, the, the richest nation in the history of humanity, but it also has the sickest and fattest population that's ever been recorded on the face of the earth. And so when you say everything in moderation, we're talking about dealing with an average that is so pathetic that we need to strive to be extreme in our pursuit of healthy eating practices and healthy living standards, because moderation means that we're allowing all these toxic chemical laden, uh, endocrine disrupting, um, you know, appetite disturbing foods, because that's the average and the norm. So I'm, I'm not big on, um, you know, a, a casual approach and allowing, for example, the refined industrial seed oils to linger around. And there's some examples here in your cupboard in your fridge. I think we should have an extreme approach to eradicate our diet of the toxic chemicals that are associated with, with cancer and disease. Uh, but then in that big picture, Hey, yeah, you can fluctuate your meal times. If you're going to enjoy an indulgence or a treat once in a while, let's have it be the most exquisitely chosen and selected. Oh, Brian, if you're watching on video, he's putting up a pic, he's putting up a jar of Brad's macadamia you know, masterpiece right there on it, the screen. It, it literally came. No, I'm not kidding you. Five minutes before we started this. <laughs> he opened the box and then turned on the mic. We're meant to be talking right now because it came right before. Yeah. 
And, you know, I mentioned uh, going on vacation to Seattle where they have the, the handmade ice cream shops and people stand in line in the, in the nice summer evening uh, and you go and get this, this wonderful handmade ice cream. And I will indulge, uh, you yes. know, gleefully every time I'm in Seattle, but that's not the same as having a pint of this ice cream on my shopping list and stocking and restocking for the other uh, 11 and a half months a year. So if we can be like more mindful and deliberate with our celebratory choices, that is, you know, going hand in hand with leading a healthy, balanced lifestyle. Yeah. And you bring up something, two points. One, cooking for yourself, I think can go a long way. I had Dr. Bill Schindler, uh, yeah, Dr. Bill Schindler on my podcast, um, and he just came out with a book. Um, But check out his work. I mean, he, they make everything. And they also, which I've never done, I've never hunted or done stuff like that. I don't know if I would, but he, he really, he really stressed how, you know, that, how important that is. And, um, just working for your food and as opposed to just always mm. ordering on Uber eats and, <laughs> and <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah. I'm sitting down and preparing a meal, chopping up the, the onions. Yeah. 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 And then, um, I got it. Lost my train of thought, but that was, but, but, oh no, that, and I think a big thing that I find that works with a lot of clients too, is you, you know, you got to clean out the cupboard, right? You gotta, you gotta, if, if, if your habits keep fighting you and you find yourself wandering into the kitchen, well, take out all those temptations by just not having anything in there. That would be that, (laughs) that you would want. Um, if you don't want to throw it away, give it away, bring it to work. (laughs) We always bring our, 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 our sweets or whatever, right. To work. So other people, obviously that's not like a greatest thing, but other people, <laughs> other people will have it, not you. Um, but that's the biggest thing my wife and I do is we just, we, we order stuff that we freeze in the freezer places like force of nature, different meats and fishes that we like. I tried this place called Cetopia, which I learned, um, from another podcast and they are out of California, really cool fishes. If you want to get some high end, like sushi grade fish. Um, but you know, try those, put those in the freezer, be prepared that way and take all the temptation out by not buying, um, you know, those things that are going to get in your way, you know, the, the, the ice creams and, and, and you can have your, you can have sort of your temptation foods, but have them maybe be on a lower scale, you know, like my macadamia masterpiece, I, I do love nuts and, um, I'm not sensitive to them, so I don't mind having them here and there. And, and I put this on like an, an egg white wrap. I used to love peanut butter and jelly, but I put this on like an egg white wrap, which is like literally made up of nothing, um, of just, and with this and like a little bit of like quality jelly. And it's like, it's, yes. Is it a normal peanut butter and jelly that I would get with a normal piece of white bread that I had probably when I was 10 years old? No, it's not the same, but for me. It actually is. It 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 meets my it meets my requirement, and that's my splurging. So I think if you can find your level of splurge and maybe just dial it up a little bit and make it so it's a little more refined and better. Not refined meaning meaning refined, but like just yeah, you get my point. I think. Yeah, I love it. I love it, and yeah. it's important to highlight um, that environment is is is, is like everything right? If you create that healthy environment in your house. And also I think your peer group and the people you uh, you surround yourself with, um, if we all allow these indulgences and lack of discipline, um, that's kind of where we're going to head. And then when we get into the mix with people who really care, and maybe you're going to be the one setting the shining example and other people are going to be following along, uh, maybe reluctantly at first, but at least you're walking your talk and you're not kind of an enabler. I think we, we, um, we do that to each other uh, in, in a negative aspect really easily where you know one person gives permission. Uh, the Framingham study has that uh, interesting uh, pull out insights about obesity clusters. I don't know if you've, they, they found happiness clusters, they found mm. obesity clusters, and it's this, uh, this degrees of separation where I think the obesity clusters were going in three degrees of separation. So if you, and let's say your neighbors uh, are obese, there's a high likelihood that it's uh, contagious. And uh, to the extent that uh, your friends and your friends' friends 
are all showing uh, adverse health markers and disease risk factors because you hang around together and kind of um, you know emanate that type of energy versus you know people who are uh, wandering around the gym every day and all their friends are gym goers and members of the running group and sort of that type of behavior is uh, contagious also. Yeah, I mean you see this with parents and their kids. It's sort of this sad sometimes, right? Same type of thing. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, surrounding yourself with the, with, you know, I always say like, I, I coach golf, uh, for high schoolers and, and I meet with them at the end of the year, we do a one-on-one -on -one meeting and, and the seniors, I'm always trying to think of something that I could, you know, it's a couple of good words for them as they're going off to college. And one of the things that I tell them is surround yourself with the right type of people and the habits that you want to get into. Uh, cause you see that a lot people surround themselves with the wrong individuals, um, or they're doing the wrong habits, uh, especially going into college. And if you could find yourself, I had a few friends that were into lifting and into, I was into Muay Thai kickboxing, and we used to go to these, you know, gyms on our own, um, in Indianapolis, cause I was at Butler for a couple of years. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's so key. It, I mean, that, there's nothing, there's nothing better than surrounding yourself with people that have healthy habits. That's for sure. Love it, man. We've had a wide ranging conversation here, cutting across fitness, diet, health, lifestyle, making good choices as a college student. We Brian could keep Grimm. going. Maybe we'll yeah. do a part two. Maybe we'll do a part two. We'll do part two. We'll get some Q and a teed up. That's always Ooh. nice to hear from. Um, so, you know, if you're listening to the show, you have some different topics, suggestions, ideas, email either one of us. You can, you can talk to me at, um, at podcast at bradventures.com. And uh, I had, at, a, had a great time. Yeah, Brian you? at briangrin.com. That's easy. And, and yeah, we could keep going on this. So maybe we'll do, I mentioned to Brad, maybe like an Instagram live uh, Q&A too. Maybe we can dial one of those up. I did that with Dr. Ted Naiman and I thought that went really well. So Love it. Thanks everybody for joining me with Brian Grin. Eat Get clean, get lean, <laughs> eat clean. There you do go. Do it all. Do Where's it all. the music? I want to hear the music. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.